1: It's Wednesday, January 31st, 2024, the 1,106th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. As you may have noticed, we are in the midst of an insane news cycle. We are being hit with big story after big story after big story. It gets very hard to discern which stories are actually worth paying any attention to at all. Which ones are completely fake? Which ones are distractions? Which ones are worth our attention? And I have to wonder if some of that is just designed to destabilize just through sheer volume. From the regime perspective, if you can't get people to stop telling the truth and sharing the truth about what's going on in the world, maybe you can just overwhelm them with information so that any truth they share gets lost in the shuffle. It becomes easy to feel like we're falling behind. And then we watch all of the quote unquote normies talking about a whole range of major headline issues from the mainstream media on a given day, and we feel like we need to know everything about those issues too, just so we can communicate on that level and understand how they're engaging with the public conversation. Just speaking for myself here, the way I go through the week preparing to do this show is I'll keep notes on my phone with links to stories I want to discuss, and I'll group them based on the subject. I'll have stories about Ukraine or about Israel or about BRICS or about immigration or about polling or elections, whatever it is. And there is so much going on. So many of these narratives that we have tracked for years now are coming together, converging major revelations on all of them happening at the same time. And I'm falling behind my own notes. Here I am putting out five hour to two hour long episodes a week most weeks, (laughs) not as many recently. But even with that output volume, there are still so many things going on that I never even get to touch on. So today I want to jump around a little bit and try to cover a bunch of subjects, just keep caught up on certain storylines rather than going too deep on any one thing. And I want to start out With this piece from Politico yesterday, DeSantis Super PAC quietly funneled money into anti-Trump group. So kayfabe, you know, and to be fair, it totally could be kayfabe. This could just be donor money that has been controlled in one way or another and is now being directed to different places. But the whole kayfabe thing is really seeming like more of a cop out as these stories continue to produce overwhelming evidence that what is happening is not kayfabe. There just really is this massive regime anti-Trump effort. And again, if Ron DeSantis happens to be a pro-Trump red team op designed to get all of this out there, wonderful. But that doesn't make the entire thing kayfabe. The chief group backing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's presidential bid made a $2.75 million cash infusion to a pop-up super PAC right around the time that group spent millions attacking former President Donald Trump. Well, how about that? The payments from the pro-DeSantis never back down to win it back PAC, a group linked to Club for Growth, were revealed in the latter group's filings with the Federal Election Commission on Tuesday. Win It Back PAC spent more than $6.4 million on digital and TV ads over the summer, opposing Trump's candidacy. It also funded a field program and text messaging. Most of that money, more than $4.5 million, came directly from the Club for Growth, a long-standing conservative organization that has opposed... Trump's 2024 re-election bid, conservative, of course, in quotes, never back down, which backed DeSantis and was funded in large part with money transferred from the Florida governor's state campaign was the group's second largest donor. And you remember when Ron DeSantis ran in that fake governor's race where the Democrats put up Charlie Crist? To act as a legitimate straw man, Ron DeSantis would just conquer the mighty Charlie Crist by, oh, so many real votes. Oh, he's America's governor, the most popular governor in the nation. Oh, Ron. Win it back's efforts to stop Trump were relatively brief, with the last independent expenditures from the group reported in late August. Several of the group's ads went unaired this fall after a data analysis found that spots attacking the former president for his legal troubles actually backfired with Republican primary voters. (laughs) Who could have ever expected that? Oh, wait. Anyone who has paid any attention to what real Americans think, rather than existing in that Washington political bubble or that social media information bubble, would have known. Those attacks would backfire. Now, a lot of people would say, yeah, doesn't that mean it's kayfabe? Nobody could actually be that dumb and incompetent. And I would say, yeah, maybe that's possible. But also every day we watch people be that dumb and that incompetent. And no, it's not shocking that Ron DeSantis could be one of those people, too. The only thing that's shocking is that everybody is so convinced that somehow Ron really was what the TV said he was a few years ago and really could not be the thing he seems to be now. And while we're on the subject of Florida, this is from Monday, MiamiIndependent.com, why the Florida Republican Assembly calls for resignations of top state officials. Bird and Matthews are asked to step down. The reasons are very simple. Florida Secretary of State Cord Byrd and Director of Elections Maria Matthews have allowed insecure elections, and they show every intention of doing so again in 2024, the most crucial election in our nation's history. They list three reasons why. First, the security checks performed annually on Florida's voting machines are very substandard, as declared by the nation's top cybersecurity expert for voting machines. Clay Parikh. And hey, Clay, if you're listening, hello. Wonderful work, sir. Florida's checks have not been updated in 19 years. Today's technology is far different and more advanced. We do not face the same security threats now as we did then. Over 14,000 possibly insecure machines were used to vote in 2020, according to the U.S. EAC reports found online. And the writer opines that cord bird thinks that's just fine. Second, Byrd has declared that local county election officials, the 67 supervisors of elections, may not perform hand counts either in the initial voting period or as audits after the fact. They are forbidden. Third, when asked about this certification of citizenship of voters, Byrd said that only the federal government had such information and that there was nothing Florida could do. In 2012, the FRA has learned the Florida Department of State signed an agreement with the Department of Homeland Security to have access to the DHS SAVE system, which would allow state and local election officials to check for citizenship. How could the Secretary of State not have known about this and used it for every voter registration submitted? FRA checked reports from the DHS on this and found that the system was rarely, if ever, checked at all. The 2012 press release from the then-Florida Secretary of State just said that Florida has access, but apparently does not use it. Also, looks like the state is not too serious about removing illegitimate voters from the rolls, as we learned with the bloated rolls Florida had when a member of the ERIC system 101.6% of all possible eligible voting-aged citizens. Also according to the U.S. EAC reports, the article discusses the lack of certification for poll books, the fact that the machines actually are connected to the Internet, and of course they can be accessed with USB devices. And the list of issues particularly with the machines goes on. Now, hey... Maybe these problems are all in the past and Ron has done something to fix Florida's elections that no one knows about and that he's never mentioned. But otherwise, there's at least substantial reason to believe that America's governor who lies to the nation and tells them Joe Biden is a legitimate president, apparently believing that Joe Biden really did receive 81 million real lawful American votes, or at least that his count in Florida must be accurate might just simply be doing the regime's bidding. People act as though that's an impossible explanation for everything we've seen when it is actually the most likely explanation, barring something hidden going on behind the scenes. If you just look at Ron DeSantis' words and actions, they all point to him simply being a tool of the uniparty right establishment. And again, if Ron is just playing his role, then all good. But we can't just pretend that's true because we like Ron so much. Based on how he handled those journalists and those wokes back in 2020 and 2021, he didn't save us from COVID. Florida is not where woke goes to die. He didn't totally take down Disney. It's all just mythologizing. And even if he did all of those things... The fact that he can't come out clearly and say Joe Biden did not receive 81 million real, lawful American votes, and we can't go on with elections until we figure out what actually happened means there's absolutely no reason to keep giving him the benefit of the doubt. He is presiding over a state that has some subset of the election manipulation issues and problems that all the other states participate in. He's not special. He's not a great politician. He's not your best friend. He's a petty, awkward, whiny tool of the uniparty right. Until proven otherwise. But let's move on. Hopefully the amount of time I have to spend on Rig D Meatball will be rapidly decreasing to zero. And watch, now that I've said that, Ron will probably just go out and unsuspend his campaign and we'll have to deal with him for another 15 months. So one of the big News items, one of the big distractions today, is that the tech CEOs are on Capitol Hill for a hearing. They're being grilled by various members of Congress. CNN has had it as their main story all morning. Lawmakers visibly upset as they grilled tech CEOs. Underneath the main picture, it says executives faced questions over the harms of child sexual exploitation on social media. Zuckerberg apologized to families. Here's what happened. And that's followed by seven or eight headlines about the dangers of social media. We're being given a narrative that suggests something must be done. Zuckerberg seeks to blame Apple and Google for underage social media use. Yeah, it's their fault. For having app stores in the first place, accusations, tears and rants, takeaways from today's tech CEO hearing. Oh, my gosh. People cried. There was real damage just from this child sexual abuse material that people on our side have been yelling about for years. Thank goodness our brave members of the illegitimate Congress are finally, quote unquote, calling them out. I guess we can just declare victory now man arrested after video post showed severed head of his father, police say, amid political rant that stayed online for hours. Analysis. Why was a revolting YouTube video of a purported decapitated head left online for hours? And they're talking about this guy named Justin Moan, who posted a video late last night where he is drinking from a water bottle and talking directly into a camera for 15 minutes while also pulling up a bucket that is said to contain, sorry kids, earmuffs, the decapitated head of his father. And make sure you understand, he is a QAnon conspiracy theorist. His entire video is him basically saying everything that quote unquote someone in our community would say. And of course, that's the point. Look at this QAnon conspiracy theorist who is finally cracked. He's so angry at federal workers that he decapitated his own federal worker father. And if you think that's bad, wait till you understand that YouTube didn't even take the video down. Oh, the humanity of it all. Now, I personally don't believe there is any reason to assume anything about that little op is legitimate. The guy used to post his quote-unquote music on iTunes. A few years ago, he put up a song called Mommunist the Communist. The dude tried suing the Department of Education for $10 million because he couldn't afford to repay his college loans. That story came out last night, late at night, after most people stopped paying attention to the news. And I would be very surprised if after today we ever hear of it again. Maybe we'll get one update in a few days or a week and then it will just disappear like that man who went and attacked the FBI field office in Cincinnati with a nail gun right after the Mar-a-Lago raid when we were told dangerous MAGA extremists would be coming after federal law enforcement. The point isn't the story. The point isn't the story being true. The point is the headline while they're trying to convince people of something else. And what's the thing they're trying to convince people of? That there is a big problem online and they need more control. But let's keep going. More headlines on CNN right in the same section. His son died by suicide after an online sextortion scam. Now he's suing Instagram. Applause erupts during Graham's opening remarks. See the moment. What is catfishing? And what can you do if you are catfished? Gosh, it's so scary to be online when these platforms can't protect us. They can't even protect the children. And what a hero Mark Zuckerberg is. I mean, coming in to actually face the country and apologize for all these terrible things that have happened on Facebook and Instagram. And then we have this from the Associated Press. Grave peril of digital conspiracy theories. What happens when no one believes anything anymore? And by the way, I have talked about a post-truth environment on this show many times. If that is our future, we should willingly embrace it. The idea that truth is handed down from authoritative sources and that we have access to the objective truth about things that are happening on the other side of the world, or about what one billion people believe, it's all preposterous. We imagine that there was this time where we were getting the truth via the news and that it represented an empirical, observable reality. All the the just-the-facts, ma'am nonsense about objective journalism, all the journalistic ethics and principles, all of that was always fake. Sorry, it was always fake. The news is the product of the intelligence community. They are telling us what they want us to believe. It's not anything else. There is no requirement for anything they're even talking about to exist, much less be true. Sooner or later, everyone has to come to understand that. And if it means you end up ignoring and tuning out all of the quote unquote public conversation, well, maybe that's the right move. Maybe if people focused on themselves and their friends and their family and their local community and making their schools better, making their individual towns better through engagement and open communication, that would set the country back on the proper path from the bottom up in decentralized fashion, which is how it's supposed to be. Instead, we have ourselves engaged nearly 24-7, often with complete and total fictions just based on the hope that maybe every two years or every four years, we will be able to quote-unquote elect the right politicians to fix everything in elections we know to be rigged. It's insane. The solution to the post-truth environment is not to pretend that we had a truth-based environment before and then try to work back to that by making sure that our mainstream media organizations really do their jobs much better this time. Their job is to create a false reality for the public. Their job is to create the reality that enables the achievement of the goals and the implementation of the agenda that the people running the news and paying for the news are pursuing. We are not children. We don't have to pretend that these corporations and these media companies, all of whom are absolutely infested with members of the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, and the military industrial complex have some deep principled belief about the value of objective truth and its dissemination to the public. But this article in the Associated Press starts off talking about the Maui fires and how people had all of these quote-unquote conspiracy theories about how these fires started. And of course, no one can definitively prove that any of those conspiracy theories are true. So therefore, we have to believe the story that the media gave us, which also can't be proven at all. Don't you understand? That's what it means to deal in objective truth. If you can't figure out how the regime's propaganda media is lying to you and you can't figure out definitively what the truth is, well, that means that you have to just accept their lie as the best possible explanation. The writer, a man named David Klepper, writes conspiracy theories have a long history in America, but now they can be fanned around the globe in seconds, amplified by social media, further eroding truth with a newfound destructive force. With the United States and many other nations facing big elections in 2024, the perils of rapidly spreading disinformation using ever more sophisticated technology such as artificial intelligence now also threaten democracy itself, both by fueling extremist groups and by encouraging distrust. You see, you have to trust the news. And if you encourage distrust, that in itself is spreading misinformation. I think the post-truth world may be a lot closer than we'd like to believe, said A.J. Nash, vice president for intelligence at ZeroFox, a cybersecurity firm that tracks disinformation. What happens when no one believes anything anymore? Well, that's a good question. What happens? Why don't we just go ahead and find out? Why don't we encourage an environment where there is no agreed-upon public truth about issues for which no one, and by that I mean no one, can legitimately say one way or another. Are we supposed to turn to the scientists for the objective truth? Oh, that's worked out so well. Extremists and authoritarians deploy disinformation as potent weapons used to recruit new followers and expand their reach. Using fake video and photos to fool their followers. Oh, it's so dangerous when anyone but the mainstream media does that. And even when they fail to convince people, the conspiracy theories embraced by these groups contribute to mounting distrust of authorities and democratic institutions, causing people to reject reliable sources of information while encouraging division and suspicion. Three cheers for the conspiracy theorists. Congratulations, David Klepper. You have figured out why it's so important. Democratic institutions, these clowns. And it's a long article. I encourage you to read it if you love propaganda, but otherwise you don't have to. Here is the main point. Absent meaningful federal regulations governing social media platforms... It's largely left to big tech companies to police their own sites, leading to confusing, inconsistent rules and enforcement. Meta, the owner of Instagram and Facebook, says it makes an effort to remove extremist content. Platforms such as X, formerly known as Twitter, as well as Telegram and far right sites like Gab, allow it to flourish. So there we have it. The sites that are actually uncensored, Telegram and Gab, are lumped in with X, formerly Twitter, to make X seem like it is also uncensored. X is a heavily censored site, but by pretending it's otherwise, by pretending it's uncensored, then they can claim it is the biggest offender in terms of spreading disinformation. And you have to love how this author is protecting Mark Zuckerberg and Meta, claiming that they're at least trying to fix the problem while you've got the tech CEO's up in front of the Congress, ostensibly testifying about the problems with child sexual abuse material and child exploitation on their platforms. But it's really all a charade designed to promote the need for censorship on social media platforms across the board. And of course, there's nothing they would like better than to shut down Telegram and sites like Gab so that we can't even access them. Because if they can't censor sites the way they need to, then the only option left is to either shut down the platform or make sure that no one can access it. So, what we have are the tech CEOs and our totally legitimate members of the Congress in the House and the Senate all agreeing that real problems exist on social media platforms and that the only solution is more censorship. Censorship is not the problem, censorship is the solution. And the thing is, we're not able to point that out because if we do, then the response is, don't you care about the problem of child sexual abuse material and child exploitation on these social media platforms? The answer to that's obviously yes. But like Joe Biden with the border, we have the people who caused the problem pretending to supply the solution when all the solutions necessary are already there. I don't know about you. But I could count the number of members of the U.S. House of Representatives on two hands that I would ever allow to represent my interests in any scenario ever and zero members of the Senate. And now these idiots are tasking themselves with coming up with legislation to fix a problem that they create and they allow and they exploit changing subjects without a segue. Now, you know, for a long time, I have talked about how fake the indictments against Donald Trump are. I do not believe they are real indictments. I don't know what you want me to say. Otherwise, the entire thing is a charade. Even if we are to take it all as real, we are talking about an illegitimate regime in power exercising illegitimate and undue power. In order to tear down a political opponent through persecution and prosecution and thus make him quote unquote unelectable in elections they already rig. Any legitimate reality that these indictments might possess is negated by the illegitimacy of the regime pursuing him in the first place. Assuming that illegitimacy problem is exposed and solved for, the indictments at that point no longer exist. So they are truthfully little more than a public display about the corruption of the regime that has been in power. And we have seen that play out. The charges are made up. Novel legal theories searching for the violation of some obscure provision of the Constitution or federal law in order to substantiate utter nonsense irretrievably damaged prosecutors and prosecutions. We've got Fannie Willis down there with her Rico case against Donald Trump for knowingly lying about election fraud in order to stage an insurrection against the country. And all these people conspired along with him. Well, now the big exposure on her is that she was dating and having sex with and going on vacations with her lead prosecutor paying him out of taxpayer funds. They're talking about impeaching her. The entire case might blow up in their faces. It probably won't. They'll probably figure out a way to get around the Fannie Willis thing and keep pursuing it because what are they going to do? Just let it go. We have to stop pretending these people care about the law or any of these processes. The regime is illegitimate. That should be at the forefront of our thinking all the time. And it has to factor into our thinking about whatever comes from that. And these indictments come from that. We have Alvin Bragg up in New York using a novel legal theory to pursue Donald Trump over payments to Stormy Daniels to cover up an affair that never happened. That Stormy Daniels says never happened. We have Letitia James and Judge Engeron going after Trump for his supposed real estate fraud overstating the values of his properties that are worth far more now than he stated they were worth back then. And that's not to mention the disclaimer clause that said directly to the banks, don't trust these numbers. These are just estimates from our point of view. And it turns out they're underestimates. And what they're trying to do is dissolve Trump's business empire. Letitia James is trying to bilk Donald Trump for hundreds of millions of dollars. The headlines go right along with that narrative. Washington Post the other day dissolving Trump's business empire would stand alone under New York fraud law. And then you've got the E. Jean Carroll nonsense. Her rape claims, a rape so devastating that she can't even remember the year it happened, much less the day. They changed a law in New York state to allow her to bring the claim in the first place. Then they had a court decide that there was at least better than a 50% chance that Eugene Carroll was telling the truth. Therefore, Donald Trump was quote unquote proven to have sexually assaulted her. Well, now he was also proven to have defamed her. So he owes her $83.3 million, as if any of this is going to stand. Eu.gene Carroll's lawyer was a woman named Roberta Kaplan, who is an LGBT rights activist lawyer, essentially. She's been involved in gay marriage lawsuits. She was involved in a lawsuit over the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. That massive psyop trying a case under the KKK Act. She was involved with the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund and eventually had to resign as chairwoman of Time's Up because she was busy defending former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo Against claims of sexual harassment. Kind of doesn't work that way. Getting on both sides of the sexual harassment issue. Are you a woke feminist trying to stop sexual harassment? Or are you just a communist trying to protect other communists and a communist agenda? And she wasn't just representing E. Jean Carroll going after Donald Trump. She actually filed a suit in New York on behalf of Donald Trump's sister, Mary Trump. And all of that played out before... U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan, and while they aren't apparently related, they were both at Paul, Weiss, Rifkind, Wharton, and Garrison law firm. Is that a conflict of interest? Well, only with real cases in a legitimate justice system. But not here. Not when Donald Trump is involved. That same Lewis Kaplan also presided over the Virginia Jufre versus Prince Andrew sexual assault case stemming from the Jeffrey Epstein matter, and over the case against Sam Bankman Freed. All of this obviously totally above board. We talked about the motion to compel discovery for Donald Trump in the Jack Smith case. Julie Kelly updated on that over the weekend, an article on her substack that you can find at declassified.live. Disturbing collusion between Biden White House and Trump prosecutors. In her article, she notes correspondence indicates that Biden's White House Office of Records Management and NARA's general counsel discussed what defense attorneys described as, quote, exaggerated claims related to records handling under the Presidential Records Act, end quote, shortly after Biden took office. One redacted passage seems to indicate that NARA drafted a criminal referral related to an alleged violation of the Presidential Records Act and notified Biden's DOJ months before the archives received 15 boxes. And at the same time, Trump's representatives were working with the archives on which files to return. A redacted portion of the motion referred to, quote, Deputy White House Counsel Jonathan Sue, end quote apparently in regard to Sue's communications with NARA's general counsel in the fall of 2021. Another passage cited unknown actions taken by the Biden administration after an email exchange with NARA's lawyer. Julie Kelly's article also notes defense attorneys also want records related to attempts by Biden's Department of Energy run by hyperpartisan Jennifer Granholm, the former Democrat governor of Michigan to retroactively terminate Trump's security clearance. A memo still under seal dated June 28th, 2023, indicates the Energy Department, quote, sought to modify the inconvenient truth that the agency possessed records showing that President Trump still maintained a security clearance, And quote. Defense attorneys wrote, the memo was written three weeks after Smith indicted Trump for unlawfully retaining national defense information. Quote, evidence of post-presidential possession of a valid security clearance between 2021 and 2023 also supports potential arguments which President Trump is entitled to explore based on existing evidence concerning good faith and non-criminal states of mind relating to possession of classified material. Defense attorneys also want records that explain the involvement of the intelligence community. Biden appointed Avril Haines, another Obama loyalist and close friend of Lisa Monaco's. Haines, Monaco, and former National Security Advisor Susan Rice are often described as, quote unquote, Obama's sisters. And Haines, the director of national intelligence in early 2021, Haynes and Monaco helped concoct the Trump-Russia election collusion hoax in 2016. Now Haynes is overseeing the classification review of all documents seized at Mar-a-Lago. And that's really something, isn't it? So Donald Trump still maintained his security clearance with the Energy Department. And after the Jack Smith indictment, the illegitimate Biden administration asked for that security clearance to be revoked. Well, what does the Department of Energy deal with nuclear power and quote unquote nuclear weapons? And what were we told that Donald Trump's classified documents that he stole were related to? Oh, yeah, nuclear stuff. And again, you got to step back from this stuff. If Donald Trump wins, however, he wins, whether he's announced as the winner of the election on November 5th, whether he wins in a contingent election or a battle over the Electoral College certification on January 6th, 2025, or in courts sometime later, or in the revelation of 2020 election fraud and disclosure of something happening behind the scenes like devolution, whatever it is, if America first wins in any possible fashion all of this stuff becomes immediately invalidated at that point. If Joe Biden is exposed as illegitimate and the country understands that, all of this stuff becomes immediately invalidated at that point. Everyone has heard the phrase, fraud vitiates everything or fraud vitiates all. All of what's happening stems from the same fraud and same illegitimacy. Either that problem is solved or it's not. If that problem is solved then all of these indictments just go gone. They're all ridiculous in the first place. And if somehow the regime wins, if the regime conquers Donald Trump and MAGA, and we are led into our techno dystopia, well, then none of this shit matters in the first place at the very, very bottom All of this is a narrative ploy, and if the narrative ploy is unsuccessful, then the details about this complete and total fiction, a couple layers up in the public consciousness, don't matter. But in the meantime, we should at least be learning the proper lessons here. This is laying down a template for future prosecutions. This is the process of drawing the lines on the field. And we should want them to draw the lines on the field, set the rules out in public, draw the lines on the field, and let's go play ball. But we don't need to get swept up into the minutiae and details of complete and total fictions, and that is ultimately what this amounts to. We can simply take a step back, process all of this rationally, understand the important issues at stake, and engage in the public conversation about how things should be. If the government is of, by, and for the people, that means it is really up to the people to decide what sort of society we want to live in. I talked at the Badlands Conference a couple weeks ago, the Great American Restoration Tour, about when we would know that the power has been handed back to the people. Donald Trump said he was going to do it in his 2016 campaign. In his January 20th, 2017 inauguration, he said he was handing power back to you, the people. Well, did he do it then? Did he do it at some point during his first term? Has it been handed back to you since the end of his first term? When the power gets handed back to you, how will you know? And if you can't answer that question, then how do you know the power wasn't already handed back to you? And if the power was handed back to you, What are you doing with it? Just watching TV and being scared about the future of Donald Trump? Are you being intimidated into silence or complicity because you don't want to face the legal ramifications of our two-tiered system of justice? How do you know whether or not the power is already back in your hands? And if it is, what are you doing with it? Are you complying? Are you playing along with the game? Many times we have discussed that the court of public opinion is the only court that matters, and it really, really is. How much proof do you need that our institutions have been infiltrated and that they have delegitimized themselves apart from anything about elections or the legitimacy of our government or the legitimacy of officials appointed by that illegitimate government? If you understand that your government is illegitimate and it's not fixing itself and the TV's not telling you that it's all been fixed, how long do you just play along with it in fear? When do you adopt a policy of active non-compliance? When do you fully adopt that as a mindset? Because people have to understand that part of compliance is believing all of this nonsense in the first place by believing it and professing belief. You are adding to the public perception of widespread belief, and that encourages the court of public opinion to side with the enemy. They are telling you what they want you to believe, even if you don't side with them in your opinion about what should be done or how we should feel about a certain issue. Just believing the so-called facts of the issue in the first place is still complying with the propaganda. I mean, think about where we are. The illegitimate regime... And the state propaganda media can simply say to the American public... Uh, hey guys, this Iran-linked militia hit this base that we have over in the Middle East with some sort of drone or missile, and now we have dead soldiers, so we're going to have to go to that World War Three thing that you all said you didn't want to do. And we're going to need that $110 billion to deal with Ukraine and that Israel thing, which is, you know, kind of part of this Iran thing, and eventually the Taiwan thing. And while we're at it, we might as well pass those border policies because we've showed you that really upsetting story too. And, you know, we really need to get all of this spending passed immediately. We're going to need your consent for it. We showed you all the problems down at the border. Now we're showing you that if you don't give us this money, American soldiers are going to die. And once they've shown everybody enough about some issues that they really care about deeply, like border issues and the safety of our soldiers, well, nobody can deny it. When the issues are so important, I mean, think about how rude it is for me to say that the tech CEO hearing today in Congress was really a push for legislation to allow for the further censorship of inconvenient narratives and American citizens rather than a genuine attempt to help protect children. I mean, it's like I don't care about the children at all or immigration at all or our soldiers' lives at all. Just because I'm even willing to propose that these dire situations might not be true just on the basis that there's no reason to believe they are. Gosh, I'm such a jerk. But let's continue with these Trump prosecutions. This is from America First Legal yesterday. Secretive Obama order may change legal presumptions regarding records President Trump received and possessed. And you can find this at AFLegal.org. Last week, America First Legal, AFL, filed a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request, with the Defense Information Systems Agency, part of the U.S. Department of Defense, to understand the secretive Presidential Information Technology Committee Created by former President Barack Obama. Why was this secretive committee created? In October 2014, Russian hackers breached the executive office of the president's network. In response, President Obama created via executive action PITC. PITC includes representatives of the Department of Defense and Homeland Security, among others. And of course, we know that Russian hackers are always really Russian hackers, and they're not just elements in our own country. But let's just accept for the purposes of this story that that is true in any way and simply move forward. You might also remember that the executive office of the president was actually spied on throughout Donald Trump's first term. And if you don't remember that, you can go back to the Washington Examiner, February 12th, 2022, Jerry Dunleavy. Durham says Democrat allied tech executive spied on Trump's White House office. That was revealed in the indictment of Clinton lawyer Michael Sussman. But back to AFL. Why is the committee relevant today? First, PITC, that's the Presidential Information Technology Committee created by Obama, creates a presumption that the president controls all information he receives. The PITC memo established the president's exclusive control over information resources and systems provided to the president. The memo created the presumption that information contained on information systems and resources was EOP information. EOP being the executive office of the president, because the memo relied on the federal records act definition of information system as resources organized for the use and disposition of information. The memo gives the president exclusive control over information he receives. This is relevant to what a president may reasonably believe about information given to him while in office. Second, and related, if information stored on the PITC network formed the basis for special counsel Jack Smith's prosecution of former President Trump, that evidence should have been disclosed to the former president and may be relevant to his liability. Special counsel Jack Smith's indictment against former President Trump claims, quote, Trump was not authorized to possess or retain classified documents, end quote. But Obama's PITC memo may have created a reasonable belief in President Trump that he, in fact, had such authority. Additionally, if the records Trump allegedly destroyed are still preserved within the EOP or the U.S. Department of Defense as part of PITC created information systems, then other claims in the indictment may be baseless. Oh, no. How sad. I wonder if they knew about all this before the indictment started. These explosive findings are consistent with America First Legal's white paper contending that the president of the United States has absolute authority over presidential papers. Neither Congress nor the federal courts may lawfully abrogate or limit this authority. America First Legal's Dr. Dan Epstein says of the matter. Unlocking this secret of the Obama presidency is not only important for public transparency, it has clear implications for whether the government may have failed to disclose necessary information to the defendant as part of its prosecution of former President Trump. And this information may significantly affect the evidentiary support relied upon in indicting and continuing to prosecute a former president. The American people deserve to know the truth behind this secretive memo and how it has been used. So now we have a situation where not only did President Trump have full legal authority to declassify anything in his possession, and not only did he retain security clearance in order to be handling those documents in the first place, but he also had every reason to believe that he was following the precedent and policy laid out by Barack Hussein Obama. In addition, of course, to the Clinton socks issue and the Presidential Records Act. Are we to pretend that special counsel Jack Smith didn't have access to any of this information when he basically just copied the report compiled by Norm Eisen at the Brookings Institution in creating these indictments in the first place? And if all of that is true... How real are we supposed to pretend these indictments are? If Trump and MAGA win, the whole thing goes away and all of these regime criminals are prosecuted. And if somehow the regime conquers Trump and MAGA, well, everyone's going to be shot against a wall in the first place. I don't understand why anyone would think the proper response is being afraid of these retards. But let's venture one step further into total insanity. Just this afternoon, the New York Times has published this story. Biden chooses John Podesta as his next special envoy for climate. President Biden has tapped John Podesta, his advisor on clean energy and a seasoned political strategist, to succeed John Kerry as his global representative on climate, according to three people familiar with the decision. Mr. Podesta will take on that international role in addition to his current White House job overseeing $370 billion in spending on clean energy products under the landmark 2022 Inflation Reduction Act. Mr. Kerry, 80, has told the White House that he intends to step down by the spring but has not given a specific date. Mr. Podesta is widely expected to take on the role in an acting position because under a recently passed law, the job of special envoy would require Senate confirmation. And you can't put John Podesta in a Senate confirmation hearing. I mean, come on. Mr. Podesta is a passionate veteran of the federal government's efforts to fight climate change. The news of his appointment was first reported by The Washington Post. He served as White House chief of staff during Bill Clinton's last three years in office, during which, partially at Mr. Podesta's urging, Mr. Clinton became something of an environmentalist, promoting Everglades restoration, protecting vast areas of the national forest from commercial exploitation. Saving Redwood Forests in California and establishing a dozen or so major national monuments by presidential proclamation. <laughs> it's so great. The federal government was just seizing wide swaths of land so that they could hand them over to the World Wildlife Foundation. Now, let's take a brief aside. It's worth checking in with PrussiaGate on Substack always. This is from a PrussiaGate article called An Ode to the Prussian Pickle. Part five, and it discusses wilderness corridors and reserves and how this is a long time project of formerly Prince Charles. He's now a king. You get that royalty, Charles, the king. He wants wilderness corridors in America. They have to save the wilderness. And the only way to do that is by having the federal government just grab for its own possession Wide swaths of land all over the country. And the article discusses this agenda under the Clinton-Gore administration with a few notes. Al Gore had nurtured a cozy relationship with Prince Philip and Prince Charles, as described by Maurice Strong. In 1991, Al Gore spent a couple of days aboard the Royal Yacht alongside global energy executives, where Charles laid out his strategy leading up to the following year's Earth Summit. Al Gore then went on to become vice president, and some of those executives aboard the Royal Yacht went on to establish an organization called Hacklight with ex-spies from the U.K., As soon as Clinton and Gore took over the White House, they set about an ambitious plan to ratify a treaty that was presented at the 1992 Earth Summit. If the treaty had been ratified, America's system of government would have been replaced with demands from the United Nations, thereby destroying American sovereignty. When the EPA inadvertently outlined the need to, quote unquote, reinvent government, Republicans began to smell a rat and realized the treaty mimicked eco-terrorist Dave Foreman's Wildlands Project. Once the game was discovered, the jig was up. Clinton and Gore knew the treaty could not be ratified, and it was withdrawn. Back to the New York Times. During the George W. Bush administration, Mr. Podesta founded the Center for American Progress, a left-leaning research organization, and then went on to become an architect of President Barack Obama's climate change agenda. He was chairman of Hillary Clinton's unsuccessful campaign for president in 2016 and then informally advised Mr. Biden at the start of his term, pushing the White House to act more aggressively on climate change before joining the administration in 2022. So it's very interesting to see Mr. Podesta coming back into the spotlight. You might remember that on election night in 2016, Podesta came out to let the crowd at Hillary Clinton's victory party know that Mrs. Clinton would not be making an appearance that night. They were busy trying to figure out if there was anything they could do to hold on to the presidency after the nation had already been told Donald Trump won. And then, of course, there's that whole thing where John and his brother Tony Podesta are degenerate perverts and very likely pedophiles with that whole Pizzagate thing that everybody says is a conspiracy theory, but everybody also knows really isn't. Now, we mentioned former Clinton campaign attorney Michael Sussman and former Clinton campaign manager John Podesta, so we might as well also mention... The former general counsel for that same 2016 Clinton campaign, Mark Elias, better known as the Democrat Party lawfare attorney extraordinaire, whose number one purpose in life is to make sure that the regime can steal all the elections it wants. Talking, of course, about Mark Elias. I had missed this article a couple of weeks ago in Reuters, but it's a breakdown of the efforts to stop third-party candidates, Biden allies plot to thwart third-party bids that threaten his reelection. American Bridge is the Democratic Party's primary opposition research organization, spending tens of millions of dollars to track Republican rivals and produce attack ads. But in 2024, the deep-pocketed ally of President Joe Biden is adding a new role that could help shape the November 5th presidential election, third-party suppressor. Worried that third-party bids from a centrist group called No Labels and anti-vaccine activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr. could siphon off votes from Biden in key states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Arizona, American Bridge has hired prominent election attorney Mark Elias to help thwart these outsider bids, among other things. A central tactic employed? Flagging technical issues or starting a legal challenge as third-party candidates navigate a patchwork of laws to get on state ballots. We're keeping an eye out to make sure they're dotting all their I's and crossing their T's, and we are not ruling out legal action with our attorneys if we identify a problem. And that applies for all third-party threats to President Biden, Pat Dennis, president of the American Bridge Group, said in a statement to Reuters. Other Biden allies have also launched a multi-pronged assault to starve third-party candidates of financial and political support. In addition to trying to keep them off state ballots, they say they are asking donors not to send them money and warning potential candidates to stay on the sidelines, according to interviews with groups involved in the efforts. U.S. demand for a third-party presidential candidate has reached record highs amid deep voter Dissatisfaction with 81 year old Biden and his likely Republican rival Donald Trump. A Reuters Ipsos poll in December showed 6 in 10 respondents were unhappy with the two party system and want a third choice. And you have to love these narratives and this polling about American sentiment. Americans' distaste for the Democrat and Republican party does indeed make them want a third choice, but for most Americans, That's Donald Trump, because Donald Trump is MAGA. He's not seen as the Republican Party. There are lifelong Republicans that want to move on from that two-party system and the establishment of both parties. Donald Trump is more popular than the Democrat Party and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. put together, and the polling also shows that. And regardless of whatever money flows in to support this no-labels potential third party, people are not looking for a future with Evan McMullen or Andrew Yang or Liz Cheney. The idea that 6 in 10 Americans want to move on from the two-party system does not in any way suggest that 60% of Americans are open to the candidate no-labels might put forward. The article notes that No Labels, which has yet to name a candidate, has already raised more than $60 million and has qualified in 14 states, including Arizona, Nevada, and North Carolina, states that are likely to help decide the election. It's on the ground or has submitted petitions in at least 13 more and plans to spend about half of its cash on securing ballot access across all 50 states. So they're doing this even without a candidate. They want to be able to place a candidate on the ballot in 50 states. And all of those people I just mentioned have at some point been tied to no labels. It's pretty safe to assume that the RNC is not going to figure out a way to keep Donald Trump from being the Republican nominee. And if Joe Biden ends up staying on as the Democrat nominee, well, then they're going to need a third option and they're going to need that third option to have ballot access across the country so that they can then name a candidate and suggest that the country wants to unify around that candidate upon rejecting Biden and Trump. It seems to have settled into the public understanding that a third party candidate would not actually draw voters away from Donald Trump. It would draw them away from Joe Biden. And of course, it's worth remembering that the elections aren't real. So all it is, is a narrative battle. And if they can't win that narrative battle, By telling Americans that one of these third party candidates actually did pull away a massive chunk of Donald Trump's support, then having one of those third party candidates involved in the process at all makes it even that much harder to win the narrative battle that Joe Biden had a path to victory. It seems like they're kind of just pulling out all the stops. And finally, I want to highlight an article in the Wall Street Journal. I'm not going to go through the entire thing. I know they're going to be discussing it on Devolution Power Hour tonight. Burning Bright actually highlighted this, but I want to put it on your radar. This is from Monday. The headline is, what the hell? Europe chafes at America's protectionist tilt. President Biden's 2021 declaration that America is back was welcomed by European officials eager to move past their trade troubles with the Trump administration. Yet instead of reversing policies driven by Donald Trump's protectionist view, Biden has advanced many of them. The president has kept trade barriers in place, left European companies out of subsidies designed to bolster U.S. manufacturing, and surprised allies with tighter restrictions on Chinese access to American technology. Many Europeans fear that Trump, seemingly en route to the Republican nomination, might abandon Ukraine and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, as well as inject chaos into global trade. They have nonetheless come to believe that regardless of the winner of the expected Biden-Trump rematch, U.S. economic policies have tilted from their favor. The honeymoon is over, one European diplomat said. Diplomats and officials across Europe are wondering whether the bloc can rely on the U.S. to continue backing the rules-based trading system or if they face the possibility of economic conflict between the longtime allies. How about that? A rules-based trading system. The global regime basically decides in real time, all the time, whatever they want, about the rules of global trade. And of course, all of that is done with the global central bank's fiat currency, currently branded as the American dollar. But perhaps not for long, a new collection of nations today just joined the BRICS currency coalition. Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates have all announced that they are joining the BRICS coalition. Back to the article. The EU has taken some steps to support its own domestic industries relaxing some of its subsidy rules to make it easier for European governments to compete with the U.S. clean technology incentives. But EU officials still largely cling to traditional free trade ideals, hesitant to embrace a U.S. approach they say reminds them of tactics favored by Beijing. European officials have warned Washington that U.S. moves to compete with China are creating collateral damage across the Atlantic. Skipping down. Biden quickly re-embraced NATO after taking office in 2021, and he cheered the expansion of the alliance after Russia's invasion of Ukraine a year later. His commitment to European security gave leaders hope that the U.S. had pivoted. They were disappointed to learn that in matters of international economics, Biden shared some of Trump's worldview. Oh, sure he did. Biden, the decision maker. The president and his advisors have cast unfettered global trade as a national security threat, warning that it has hollowed out the U.S. industrial base, harmed American workers, and allowed China to dominate important industries. Joe Biden was always in favor of all those policies that empowered China. He has a long history of that. Why is he doing the opposite thing during this term where he is the real president? I mean, just think of all the real presidential power he has and the influence he could have as president with those pro-Chinese growth policies. And instead, he's just doing all the stuff Donald Trump put in place. Weird. One early test for the Biden administration was how to address the tariffs Trump slapped on European steel and aluminum. The president suspended them after he took office, but he didn't permanently end the duties on metals, imposing more modest fees that nonetheless cost European metal exporters hundreds of millions of dollars last year. European leaders sought repeatedly to persuade Biden to kill the tariffs. In October, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, European Council President Charles Michel and other EU officials arrived in Washington for a summit where they had hoped to put the issue to bed. In talks ahead of the summit, U.S. officials had pushed for the EU to impose tariffs on Chinese metals as part of a deal, a step some Europeans worried might violate World Trade Organization rules. The night before the White House meetings, EU diplomats Reviewed a proposed joint statement, which was the product of last-minute negotiations between the U.S. and the bloc's executive arm. After review, some of the diplomats said the statement sounded like the bloc would be willing to back those tariffs as part of an eventual deal. There was just a barrage of member states going, what the hell, one European diplomat said, and the article concludes this way. Many Europeans say what they most fear from a Trump election win is the possibility of the U.S. abandoning Ukraine and Russian forces moving to their doorstep. A breakdown in the transatlantic relationship would leave the world even more divided and strengthen the authoritarian challenge to the rules-based world order we are seeing from Russia and increasingly China, said Eric Bratberg of the Atlantic Council, a nonpartisan think tank in Washington. So the global regime is freaking out about these so-called authoritarian countries, Russia, and increasingly China. And naturally, that's how they refer to any ruler who is not on board with the global regime's agenda. They are telling us clearly Russia and China are not on board. And we can see countries joining BRICS. It's worth noting Russia and China are the R and the C in BRICS. The coalition represents more than half of the world's population, and it's continuing to grow. They are bigger and stronger than the G7. They represent more of the world's population and more of the world's large economies. The regime can say it's worried about Ukraine and Taiwan. They're just protecting democracies. They're just protecting the sovereign borders of these very sovereign independent countries that just simply aren't that. But what are they really concerned about? They're losing their proxy states and they're losing their ability to control the rest of the world through the central bank's fiat currency currently branded as the American dollar. And now they can't even influence trade policy. Joe Biden is continuing Donald Trump's protectionist trade policies. It's like Donald Trump is still president. For more, go ahead and check out Devolution Power Hour tonight on Badlands. It's not going to be me there, but I'm pretty sure they're planning on discussing this. And that's always a good time. I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network.